0: Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world safer and more prosperous. We're talking today about content moderation, not just in the United States, but across the globe. It's something that I'm sure you see in your news feed on a seemingly weekly or monthly basis. YouTube or Twitter or one of the other major social media platforms makes the decision to either pull someone from the platform or not pull someone from the platform, there's a firestorm of controversy about that content moderation decision. This is not a problem that's going away. This is something that people are going to be angry and concerned about for the near future. So we decided to bring on someone who's not just an American expert in content moderation policy, but someone who is a global expert. Will Duffield and I are joined by David Kaye, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. And the author of *Speech Police: The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet*. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. And what is a rapporteur?
1: That's a good question. It's a special rapporteur. The uh, special is important. There, Um, basically, uh, the UN's Human Rights Council appointed me as its monitor for freedom of expression around the world, and it's it's a position that has been held for about well since 1993, 1994. I'm the fourth one for the Human Rights Council, and there's about 50 other special rapporteurs handling different areas of human rights around the world. And it's it's actually, I mean, it's been called the crown jewel of the human rights system of the UN, and it is. I mean, if you look at the kind of work that we do, we're really untethered in many ways to the, um, you know, to the restrictions that others have in the Human Rights Council or other human rights mechanisms around the world.
0: And what so when you say you are um, there's there's 50 of you, you're around the world looking at different areas for mm-hmm. you, in particular it's freedom of expression. What do you actually do on a day to day basis? Yeah,
1: yeah so on a day to-day basis, we communicate directly with governments and increasingly, and it goes to the topic of the book um, with with companies in terms of their restrictions on freedom of expression. Quite a lot of that in the in the day-to-day sense deals with attacks on journalists and journalism. Which you know has increasingly been online attacks, um, but you know it's physical attacks. It's you know Jamal Khashoggi. So it's killings. It's that kind of thing is our day to day. That's sort of the bread and butter of the work. But I also do um, kind of thematic reporting to the Human Rights Council once a year and to the General Assembly once a year. So I've done reports on encryption and anonymity. Sort of the first kind of human rights overview of the importance of digital security. Um, s- protection of sources and whistleblowers, you know all sorts of thematic issues. I've done reports on those and my predecessors have also. And then the last thing is I do country visits. So i I mean, it's a funny system. I have to ask a country for an invitation, which is weird. It's like asking for an invitation to a party. But in order for me to officially report to the Human Rights Council on a particular situation in a state. Um, I need to get an invitation. So I visited places like Turkey, um, not long after the attempted coup and the strict repression of journalism and academics and just many others. the
2: teaching profession there.
1: The teaching profession, civil service, civil society. I mean, it's really, it's, it's just gotten worse. And that was a few years ago that I did that visit. But also um, Mexico, Japan, which is you know a free society but has problems related to independent journalism and investigative journalism. So we do those kinds of things as well. And you know with freedom of expression and also freedom of opinion, um, everything has been kind of subsumed under under that you know whether it's protest or um, or digital rights or journalism, there's just so much going on. there's so much, Attack on those things, and so
2: are, were you. Then, are you the first special rapporteur
1: of the platform internet age? So, my predecessor, uh, an, a Guatemalan activist named Frank Larue, really um, he led the way in many respects. He did a report in I think it was 2011 on freedom of expression and the internet. In 2011, you know, the you know social media had already. Launched, um, but it wasn't what it is today. Yeah. Um, but you know, he really provided some principles. Very interestingly, and I think you know, people uh, probably who are listening to the to the podcast and also many people here at Cato are interested in issues of surveillance and the interaction between surveillance and freedom of speech and freedom of opinion. And he did this really groundbreaking report in 2013 that came out. It was to the Human Rights Council. It came out about two weeks before the Snowden revelations. And and he provided a kind of survey of concerns about surveillance and how surveillance can interfere with privacy, which in turn... Has a can have a deep chilling effect on expression. So he, he basically gave a legal framework for thinking about that. So in some respects, I'm building on on his work and also the work of others in civil society, um, in some governments, Council of Europe, for example, and the book goes into this in some detail, Europe is way ahead of uh, at least public institutions, quite far ahead of, uh, of American public institutions, often in thinking through the 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 rights component of many of these issues. I mean, I will say there's a report on this. So I did a report to um, to the Human Rights Council on what we call the digital access industry, basically, and it's, you know it's your cdns it's your telcos and isps it's you know those actors also play a very big role and they're 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 different in certain respects from i mean in very important respects from social media and other you know, others at the content layer because you know those actors in order to go they have to make a choice to go into a market or to accept a client right so if you are say um, you know, uh, Telia, right? You know, Scandinavian telco, major telco, and, and they have operations in Central Asia. Like they have to make a decision. Do we go into Tajikistan, knowing full well that, you know, Tajikistan's security services use this Russian SORM, this device that basically hoovers up all information from, you know, all traffic? Do they do they do that? I mean that that involves um, I think for, for a Scandinavian com- company uh, a kind of compromise in their values. So, so they have to make that choice whereas you know Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, they're, they're either available or they're not at the at the will of, of governments. And that, that just presents a different uh, a different setup for them, I think.
2: Certainly, more, more broadly in, in thinking about that Tajikistan example, um, when we think of the internet, As a whole and its effect on freedom of expression, there are trade-offs. How do you approach them? How do you see it shaking out, Um, especially looking around the world? Because often here in in tech policy in the United States, we think that the internet ends, if not at the United States borders, at at least the borders of Europe, perhaps. Uh, But that's not the whole story.
1: No, it's not small question there. Well, I mean, that's a, that is a really big part of of the book, um, you know, at least thematically. And um, you know, so I maybe backing up a little bit, I, I still have this kind of optimistic belief that the internet, including social media, I would say, especially search, right, has really opened up vistas for people around the world. It has provided, Access to information that people really had to hunt for and would would be very unlikely to find. Like so, like if we look at the net gains, I like that net gains yeah. right, no pun there, right? It you know um, the the net gains of the last twenty years I think are enormous, but what we've seen is that there are there's kind of darkness there as well. And I'm not talking about the dark web. I I do mean this kind of centralization that has given extraordinary power to both private actors and public institutions to restrict that access to information. And I think one of the things we've seen is is this it's not really the tech lash, right? Which is I think an American kind of phenomenon right now, but it is it's governments that have been, I think, accustomed to seeing their role as policing public space and losing that control to private, basically private American companies based in Northern California. Uh, and so there, this has been like the trade-off, generally speaking, for a company that wants to go in and provide access to information. is It's a hard one. And I don't you know, pretend in the book to have the answer to that, but it is a hard one. Are you, are you providing such a service that some form of censorship, some form of restriction is tolerable? I mean, we have to go down the list and and think specifically about those those restrictions, and it varies around the world and some of and and I guess just to close this part off, my my big concern is that in this totally legitimate effort of governments to have you know some at least some insight and oversight of over this space um that they're completely overreacting in many, many parts of the world and causing just as surveillance has. Um, causing really deep restrictions on, on expression that go beyond what I, I would, and, and I'm guessing many people here, would consider to be acceptable uh, trade-offs. Trevor you, you write about
2: the uh, Google Spain right to be forgotten mm-hmm. case, um, saying that it, quote, points to the use of democratic institutions, the tools in place where rule of law prevails in order to restrain the operations of corporations, which sounds sounds nice. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective, at the end of the day, while the law applies to Google, it affects me as an individual. Even here, if you totally. look particularly at some of these global takedown orders we're moving towards now, and, and my ability to gather information about the true state of things. Yeah. Um, so I end up finding myself you know, wanting Google to have a very wide latitude so that I can track down whether my doctor's been censured in the past for poor surgical right. performance. I,
1: I totally agree with that. And, and you know, my point in, in talking about the right to be forgotten in the Google Spain case is less on the merits because I, I share your concern. I mean I'm, I am concerned that, um, I mean and putting it in the context of European rights and their perception of fundamental rights, data protection, like explicitly in European law is a fundamental right on par with freedom of expression. So my concern is that like on the merits of the case is that um, that it tilts much too far in the direction of privacy over expression. So uh, and and we can see that because Google Spain created this rule that Google has to apply that is basically a rule of relevance. Like is if you do a search and it has to be a name-based search. If you do a name-based search and it comes up and and it's no longer relevant, and I'm simplifying the standard, then you can ask Google to take it down. And what what it does. So the first part of it is, to me, that's interesting. Is you know it started with a lawsuit. You know it was an actual you know a Spanish citizen making use of democratic institutions. Um, In order to put constraints on a foreign company, so to my mind, that's like that's a a democratic tool. That's I I like that part of it. Right, many people around the world lack that. They don't have independent judiciaries. They don't have the ability to really, um, you know, pressure a company to do something. So it's an unusual situation. But the other part of it that that I you know use one of the reasons I use it in the book is that. What what happened was the the top court in the European Union decided Google Spain, they said, here are the rules. Now you, Google, adjudicate. I mean it didn't say, okay, we're gonna you know every state in the union has to create a system so that somebody can apply up- to a court that would then order Google to take something down, which that would be a democratically accountable way of doing it. Like I think in the United States, we might think that's a little bit nuts, but that's completely consistent with democratic principles in Europe. And it's consistent with human rights principles there as well. So they didn't do that. They instead basically increased Google's power to adjudicate what this norm looks like. And that To me, that is concerning.
2: And you write about that as well in the context of NetzDG, the uh, German takedown law, which again requires a whole host of platforms to be the interpreters and judges really of the extent of German hate speech laws.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think this is just something that And I think your point, I think is really important that, uh, that this affects American users. Right, so it affects it affects Americans in at least two ways. So one is our access to information in Europe, because if if you're doing well, maybe it's maybe you have a doctor who comes from, like you say, comes from Europe, and maybe it's you know their their medical practice isn't going to be taken down, but maybe there's something else in his life that he considers irrelevant, and he applies to Google and gets something taken down. But but to you, and we take patient autonomy really seriously in this country. You want to know. You, like you want to know the full picture and you might not have access to that. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that because the companies operate at scale, right? So any rule that might be imposed on them in Europe is, you know, it depends on the rule, but it is certainly within the realm of likelihood, let me say, that um, that they'll apply that new rule globally. So it it turns out that you know, a rule in Europe around hate speech, uh, develops into kind of a platform term of service more or less because they shift over. to say, "Okay, if that's your rule, we'll just make that the rule for all of our users." Well, easier, we, yeah, much easier. And maybe, maybe that's fine. Like particularly if that principle is like broadly in line with thinking about either human rights or, or freedom of expression. But it still excludes Americans from that process, and, oh, and that's I and think for concerning. Me,
2: not being a European, then. European democratic decisions aren't really any more legitimate vis-a-vis me than Google just deciding yeah. things.
1: Yeah. Um, right, exactly. But this is why I think... I mean, I think this... Um, you know, what's happening in Europe Again, which I do not see as some you know dark thing that's happening. I think they need to be, um, if if they're heading down a path of regulation, there are smart regulatory tools that they can adopt, and they're not, they haven't, by and large, been doing that. But in principle, I don't see a problem with it. But the fact that this is uh, more or less absent from the American discussion, so you know the discussion around. Uh, breaking up Facebook, for example, right? And I'm not I'm not a, a competition expert by any measure, but one of the things that has been striking to me is sort of the, it's the flip side of what's happening in Europe in the sense that it's really an American competition discussion that doesn't take into account the fact that for Facebook, for example, 85% of their nearly two and a half billion users are outside the United States. So what impact does the breakup Of Facebook have on those users. It might be completely sanguine, right? We might be totally totally fine. But they're excluded from that conversation, much as we are excluded from the European conversation. And and I think that that like recognizing that and then thinking about what kind of principles, if any, we want to see online is important.
0: This framing though makes me think: okay, so when Google or Facebook or any of these these platforms, when they do it themselves and are encouraged to do it, indeed, by national governments, that is free from democratic norms, whereas if we shift that to a set of civic institutions, well, now it's democratic, why is what Google does or any private company, why is that not democratic? And if it isn't, why should it be? Like, do you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, I
1: do. And maybe I can answer it, um, and you can tell me if I'm not exactly yeah. answering the question. But, but I, first off, I think that there's variation from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, right? So, um, and Nicole Wong, who is who's one of the uh, like the early deciders, there's a, a great Jeff Rosen story. In um, in the New York Times Magazine, like ten years ago, about uh, about Nicole and her team at Google making decisions around speech. So it's not like this is a new issue. But she pointed out in this in an interview, which I think is correct, is is our way of thinking is the companies also have First Amendment rights, right? They they have the right to decide what the platform looks like. They have the right to decide their brand, basically. So I think that's fair and in the american context in particular there's a significant amount of competition and it's competition that's not just platform competition it's competition among you know social media traditional media broadcast radio podcasts now i mean there's a whole range of things it there's a different valence to that situation in places where these American platforms really do dominate public space. So I'm thinking about places, you know, not just the Myanmar's or the Philippines, those kinds of examples, but even in Europe, where Google is a very dominant, let's say, shaper of, of public space. And yet there, there really is limited accountability for their decisions. And, and I think just looking at it from the perspective of, of those governments... And we could keep it with democratic governments because at least we can assume that there's some good faith effort there. I mean, not always true, and and you know, I, healthy skepticism, for sure. But I think they're making an effort to say, this this is a company decision. It's company, oftentimes driven by branding or business model or whatnot. But you're having such an impact on our civic space. You're having an impact on, say, our debate around immigration in Germany. Um, and taking in refugees. You're having a, um, a huge impact on our elections, for example. those you know, You're creating that space. And so we feel the need that this, this space should be regulated. My, my concern has been that in that regulatory move, governments, again, have been giving the companies more power and not putting themselves in a position of being democratically accountable. That so that's I mean that's a very long way of of I hope that's that's kind of getting to to what you're asking. Well, I,
2: I think you see it on on both sides as well, in that neither states nor platforms really want to be decision makers when they can avoid it. Um, I mean, looking to the the horrific Myanmar example, in that case, you you had a state which was attempting to push out. Genocidal propaganda, but at the same time, Facebook, which didn't have a lot of local knowledge, uh, reviewers who understood the language, et cetera, seemed very deferential to the government in making takedown decisions. Um, so, to what extent should states privilege the concerns, uh, or should platforms privilege the concerns of state actors in the content moderation process, and how should that be moderated by platform's lack of local knowledge? Because it seems you know, in, in cases in which you have more knowledge, um, you might these might be places in which you can defer to the state a little bit more, but it's precisely in the spaces where it's easiest to defer to the state where you don't have that local knowledge that the consequences of doing so can be most disastrous.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is, that is such a great a great question it's a real insight into the problem that the companies face or one of the problems that they do face they have you know very little insight i mean let's be honest it's it's easy for an american company to have insight into even you know small town america and you know the kind of content that you might see at like the hyper local level on facebook let's say that's i mean that's accessible to them and to us in in a cultural political and legal way. Yeah, you can but get the
2: hidden meaning exactly, in something. Exactly.
1: And it's not just language, right? So when you think about a place like Myanmar or as I've been I've been trying to raise I wouldn't say raise the alarm but I want I want the companies to be thinking about a place like Ethiopia right now. So places where, you know, there's been years of repression and suddenly the lid is taken off, right? And then you have sort of an active media environment. Um what what is the role of the companies and the platforms when you know that environment turns, you know genocidal or turns into ethnic conflict. How does a company get access to that? I mean to that real important information? I, I mean, I think of it very loosely because I don't mean it like really literally, but how do we think about democratization of the platforms? Like because it, it can't just be hiring you know a thousand more language. Moderators for a country. There, there's something deeper about the nature of interactions, and since I think of this as as kind of you know Colin Powell before Iraq said, "You break it, you own it." I guess which is the <laughs> apparently is not the Pottery Barn rule, <laughs> but <laughs> but but here the situation is you know um, you built it, you own it. You know the companies built these platforms, and they have a responsibility to deal with these these kinds of important problems, and then they but they create space for for problems. So in that context, right. Uh, you know, so what do they do about governments that want to manipulate the platform themselves the companies have developed some I think routines of pushback but the problem is their pushback relies at the end of the day on you're asking us to do something that's inconsistent with our terms of service my my proposal and I've been kind of proposing this for a while is why don't you rest your rules on globally recognized standards that that all governments i mean they're they're at a certain level generic, although there's a lot of jurisprudence around human rights norms that binds all states. And and so part of my, my pitch to the companies and, and pitch in the book is rest your rules on, on human rights standards, basic standards of freedom of expression. And then at least when you go to back to those governments that are saying, take this content down because it's critical of us, um, or when, or why did you take this? content down it's our military preserving national security or something like that you can go back to them and say look this isn't about a business decision this is about what we understand to be our responsibility to protect our users and the public's right now ultimately a government can say you know sorry we're going to shut you down I mean they do have that ultimate tool but I but I also do think that that the companies have more leverage to do that than than they sometimes uh, kind of admit. Uh, the other
2: big suggestion in your book is is transparency. And you mentioned both decisional transparency and rulemaking transparency. What are the differences between those and and what would either of them look like in practice as yeah. applied to these platforms?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so transparency often is um it's like a mantra and 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 we need to have content. Like what does it mean? To say that the governments or uh, the companies are more transparent, and and I do think that one of the major problems of our debate over the last couple of years has been that has been basically an information asymmetry, right? The companies have all of the information about how their rules are adopted. That's the rulemaking, uh, uh, the rulemaking transparency. They should disclose more about how they adopt rules, and they they are like massive bureaucracies. I mean, that's another part like we tend to see from the outside, oh, they just decided today to adopt a new hate speech rule. Well, you know, it's part of a bureaucratic process. Uh, and and I think that that part needs to be less opaque than it is now. Even more so, the actual enforcement of those rules. I mean, really, like the Nancy Pelosi video last week was a, a kind of uh, perfect Example of the debate around this the, these issues, right? because few people really understand, including myself, you know what is what is the enforcement history around manipulated content? You know, if we at least knew that we'd we'd be on a firmer kind of at least public debating ground to talk about well, what should the companies do? What does it mean to be consistent, right? What does it mean to say, you know, well, this manipulated content should be taken down. Well, are we talking about? Is this the first time? And I, I think that a lot of people responded with really excellent suggestions about technical solutions, right? And that's great. That's like an A plus. There are a lot of A plus answers, but to a different question, because I think even before you get to the technical, we, we the companies still are going to have to make a decision. Um, do we? Are, are we going to draw the line at? All manipulated video, all manipulated content. I mean, that seems first of all technically very difficult, um, increasingly difficult. Although it's you know it's always a cat and mouse between you know creators and the companies. Um, do we want that? But whatever, wherever you draw that line, you're going to have to have a rule. I mean, there's a rule that basically informs the algorithm. So it's not. It can't be just a technical. It's a. It's a kind of. It's a values-driven decision, and we can say—I mean, it is acceptable at least in the United States—to say it's a company; it can decide what it wants to do. It's not as you know, countless people have explained to me—you know, the companies aren't bound by the First Amendment. You know, thank you. Um, you know, as government. <laughs> if you weren't are, aware, Mr. Yeah, Law I, Professor. right. Yeah. I just—I just learned that. No, but that's—that's that's obviously true. But like the reason why this is such a big debate is because these companies have massive impact on our public life. There's no there's no way around that. And so so I just I kind of wanted to in a way ask people, think about this problem. You you might come out wherever on the map and that's totally fine, but justify it and, and understand like you use the word trade-offs, understand the trade offs that it will take place wherever you draw that line.
0: I hope you found our interview with David as interesting as we did. Uh, Will and I had a few thoughts about the interview, the topics we touched on, things that just didn't come to us in the moment that we wanted to uh, talk with each other about here. Now, Will, what was one of your big takeaways that we think, you know, we did touch on a little bit in the interview, but, you know, you want to flesh it out a bit more. So stepping back
2: to kind of a a wider... higher level, Um, much of our conversation revolved around the internationality of the internet and the speech it hosts, the fact that it's governed by an interlocking web of legal systems and state demands and undergirding them, different ways of thinking about speech. That's what informs these different legal systems, different beliefs about its value the damage potentially it can do Um, and historically, the internet has been driven by America and a certain western set of speech norms which are now increasingly being contested by European authorities who come from a very different tradition surrounding speech, um, who see it as potentially much more threatening or even in the context of a right, as a right to be balanced against others um, in a a broader kind of give and take. Um, And how this, the direction, this international conversation or eventual agreement um, around the norms we we should hold vis-à-vis speech, how we should feel about speech and and through it how people use the internet um will will really shape the sort of net we end up with.
0: Do you think that undermines the value of I mean so David proposed a you know, using the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as this like global template, a one size fits all shared set of values. I mean, do you see that national and like local norms? The tension between that, um, even you know, even American kind of speech values. I mean, do you still see that problem with this kind of?
2: Yeah, I, I, I see it on both sides. Um, I think David was was right in his his claim that at the end of the day, while we might see the UN or human rights-based speech framework is more restrictive than what we have under the First Amendment, it actually tracks with or isn't much more restrictive than most contemporary platforms policies. However, there are a lot of Americans who think that those policies are too restrictive and want an internet governed under a First Amendment standard or at least the ability to inhabit spaces online governed in that fashion. Um, and on on the other side, I think there there are places around the world which are far less liberal vis-a-vis speech than um, this UN Declaration on Human Rights yeah. or even the United States and, and aren't going to take kindly or won't easily accept um, either American or uh, international standard, um, and some of that has already driven the extent to which we see fragmentation in the internet today, the fact that China has, for the most part, its own separate internet ecosystem. Um, now, you can see some of that is protectionism, that it's not not just a speech concern, but how the Chinese state, the Communist Party, a- approaches the speech of its citizens. Um, has had a tremendous impact on how they've structured their internet.
0: Well, it feels like, too, I mean, to some extent, the uh, horses out of the barn, um, there are all these different fracture points. So, like, one of them is, well, there are, you know, authoritarian governments that are just creating hard firewall type, you know, their own walled garden internets. Um, We also have the example of uh, unintended consequences like uh, GDPR leading to European internet users not being able to access... Certain American newspaper websites because compliance is just not worth it. So, in a sense, well, and that's as- inadvertent
2: fragmentation. So we have inadvertent- the point of the bill isn't to cut Europeans off from American no, no. local news sources, no. but yeah. um, you know, sometime this next year during the primaries, when uh, some candidate behaves foolishly in Iowa mm-hmm. and folks follow a link from the Guardian and can't quite get to the local story, um, they'll realize that it does. Deprive them of information, but also it just places them further from Americans. We share less cultural context, even on the margin, for that GDPR change.
0: So we have these different, you know, whether purposeful or unintentional, we have these different fracture points, which are um, creating internets, right? Increasingly so.
2: A- and on the other side, we still see convergence. Both are happening at once mm, sure. uh, because plenty of Americans are using platforms that have adopted effectively European hate speech norms. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, they see those norms as as normal because yeah. it is how their online interactions are governed and um, perhaps also comports with a certain Marcusean understanding of speech mm-hmm. that they buy into. But um, yeah. that that in and of itself represents a certain convergence. Um, when American Airlines or uh, hotels are, are bullied into changing their listings vis a vis Taiwan or um, Tibet. So it, I I think it's important to recognize that it's not just an either or. Yeah. Both can happen, and they can be happening at the same time, which I think strikes us as odd. Uh, uh, not re- it's an easy easy to see as a binary.
0: It's hard to I mean I, any kind of grand prediction about what. You know, it, do we revert back to a kind you know to the to the World Wide Web? So, I mean, I, I have a concern that's it's not unrelated. It's a little bit of a different um, angle here. So, as I was listening to David talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, it that at the time it was kind of an incoate concern that I had, but not long after we uh, interviewed him, uh, he uh, retweeted a um, uh, and. Um, basically the the summary of an article that April Glazer, a journalist at Slate was writing where she calls for broadcast era regulations to be applied to the internet including she explicitly calls for fairness doctrine style regulations and as well as the public interest standard and this is something that I, I do in my research uh, broadcast you know mid- 20th century broadcast regulations and it put a kind of a, a head on those concerns that I had even at the time which is that I'm not sure I actually think there is a meaningful difference between freedom of speech and freedom of expression, not in terms of the words themselves, I mean, speech, expression, they're, I mean, they're essentially synonymous, the, the words, but in the way in which, in how they're actually employed, there actually can be a meaningful difference. Uh, and that is that the difference, freedom of speech as it's expressed in the US Constitution is a negative protection. Congress shall make no law. So the obligation there is Congress to do nothing an idea that that promotes freedom of speech, um, versus freedom of expression, which often is uh, employed uh, as a positive right, which can include the idea of not of a negative protection, government not doing something, but government actively doing things to promote speech. And this actually comes up back during the Fairness Doctrine debates of the 1960s and 70s. This is how people... The ACLU, for example, backed the Fairness Doctrine and when people said, well, aren't you saying that – by saying that, that speech should be balanced, that if a radio station or television station has a conservative on, they should also have a liberal on to balance them out, that you're tweaking with that station's freedom of speech, the right to air whoever they want. And they would say, well, yes, but the freedom of speech, we want to promote more speech and more speech by more diverse people. So therefore, we are actually protecting freedom of speech because we're going to provide more and better and different speech. But you can see how slippery that can become because the net effect, I mean, my all my research shows the use of the fairness doctrine to punish uh, politically unpopular points of view in the 1960s and 70s. So like that's where that can, that difference between a negative protection versus a positive right can be meaningful and I mean, even Kay himself, when he, you know, was, you tweeting Glazer's take on public interest standards and fairness doctrine, I don't know if he has that same concern that I would have.
2: So I think a a positive, negative right distinction matters, um, can be very meaningful, especially when um, we're thinking about silencing some in order to allow others to better speak or speak more comfortably. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think you get there. In any way, from uh, the speech expression distinction. Um, There's no reason why limiting the expression of of some in order to allow others to more comfortably express themselves would flow from freedom of expression as a concept.
0: The way I put it is that nothing in the text of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights means that you have to interpret it that way. Even
2: when it comes to... Pure speech um, that can be understood in a positive fashion as well. You look to the First Amendment of the California Constitution, and mm-hmm. it includes a, a positive right to speak on, speak publicly on matters yeah. of—I forget the precise text—but it uses speech and, nevertheless, uh, proposes a positive right. So, I I worry about treating. Uh, Freedom of expression is some kind of weasel word that can take us down a dark path. I don't think there's anything dangerous about it and I think it it does capture um, valuable human activities, ways of making ourselves heard or evincing meaning that aren't always captured in, in pure speech um, and that pure speech as well can uh, lead us to relatively respect more or offer greater protections to certain sorts of written words perhaps or recorded speeches um, where we might then ig- ignore um, a painting or or dance or even something that might sound a little more like an expressive outburst than a well thought- out argument
0: I actually I agree with you i I don't think whether we speech versus expression, the words and what's literally on the page is a meaningful difference. Or it can be. I mean, I I, I I agree that like there's always been a temptation to think of speech very narrowly in American history, which is why even the founding fathers put freedom of press alongside speech to make it clear. Because in Europe, there was this tradition in the 17th century and the early 18th century of government saying, okay, 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 you can say whatever you want. You can speak whatever you want, but you can't print whatever you want. That's different. On the page, it's different. Oh,
2: it's interesting when we think about other proposed controls today on the velocity of speech, because that's precisely what those were. Flesh it out
0: for us. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, when we think about a limit on, on bot speech today, perhaps, mm-hmm. or... Thinking about breaking up platforms to create fire breaks for misinformation or bad speech, as Glenn Reynolds proposed in a recent book, um, these are attempts to limit the velocity of speech, the speed at which a given piece of information can travel between persons. And if you think back to prohibitions on printing rather than merely speaking, especially at a time when transport was a bit slower. Well, yeah. it would take a while for an idea to get around if uh, you had to remember the whole thing, mm-hmm. walk around to people you knew, repeat it out, get them to remember it, and pass it on to the next fellow that passed. If you could hand a printed pamphlet about, you could all get on the same page That's as it were the, yeah. much more rapid.
0: That's actually really interesting that it's yeah restriction of velocity speech and then applying that to the digital age. I really like that. So I, th- I think that that kind of sums up some of our Big thoughts in the aftermath of the interview Um, is actually the week after we recorded, there was this another big hullabaloo. It it broke the day of our recording, but became much a topic of conversation, the, you know, the the Crowder YouTube, whatever. But um, I don't think we need to go into litigating the details of that case, but to remind everyone that, like, this is going to continue to happen, right? Cases like this disagreements like that about content moderation are very much part of our digital future. Uh, And so I think this was a timely conversation. Uh, Thank you for coming on, Will. And Until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.